Welcome to Life Hurts, God Heals. I'm one of your hosts, Kurt Flagel. And I'm your other host, Kim Ward. And on this episode, we get the immense privilege of having Dr. Deanna Schrodes, someone who I have been following for at least 12 years. And I am so excited to have you guys all hear her story and see how God's been moving and working in her life. Please join us as we go through part one of two in our interview with Deanna Schrodes. So Deanna, we're so excited to have you on here today. Oh, I'm excited to be here, Kim and Kurt. I'm just honored that you've invited me. Thank you so much. Well, it's funny because I'm adopted and so are you. And that's actually how this all started for me. Wow. I remember when you were praying, you were, you were talking about, you know, people not wanting to be alone, people feeling like they were the only one. And that was where I was at when I was 27, 12 years ago. Wow. And I was looking for anyone who was coming at adoption from a Christian point of view, but who wasn't talking all, as you said, rainbows and unicorns. Right, right. <laughs> who understood the, tra- the trauma piece of it, yes. Yeah. So at the time, you were the only blog I found wow. that matched that criteria and and put words to things that I was just starting to process. Wow. So for me, I was sitting there, I'm like, oh, this is awesome. God, I can't wait to have Deanna on because... Wow you know, you've been a huge part of my journey of healing for this. I am so blessed to hear that. It is just an honor to know that anything I've written or done has made a difference for you in your journey. So thank you so much for telling me that. It's amazing how he works in our story, which is, of course, why Kurt and I love doing this podcast, because it's all about sharing people's stories. If you wouldn't mind giving just a little background of, you know, childhood, how this all started, you know, just the, at least the beginning of your story. Sure. Well, I was born in Norfolk, Virginia. My birth parents uh, are both from the Richmond, Virginia area. But when my uh, birth mother became pregnant with me and was kicked out of her house and then had to find a place to go, they sent her to a maternity home a couple hours away in Norfolk. And so I was technically born there, but very quickly after that brought back to Richmond where um, I was adopted. And I was adopted by Christians. I was raised in a Pentecostal Christian home all my life and and until I went off to Bible college and, you know, began to prepare for the ministry. I had felt a call to ministry since I was about seven years old. Uh, My grandmother, who lived across the street, was just such a huge influence on my life. Strong woman of God and such such an impact on me from the very beginning. So I'm so grateful for that. And I was raised in a wonderful church as well that had so many things for children and young people and that propelled us on to serve the Lord and to wholeheartedly give our lives to him and in every way, shape and form. And so I was very blessed uh, in that way. But there was still that hole in my heart, like so many of us adoptees feel, where we want to know our origins and we want to perhaps even have a relationship. Of course, we don't know how that will go one way or the other, but we long to know our beginnings. We long to know our heritage. Some of us crave a relationship and we just hope that maybe that will happen. So when I was 27, it's interesting that you talked about um, 27 because I began to desire really strongly. I always wanted to know, but when I became pregnant with my first child, it was like, whoa, this was overwhelming. You know, it was just a huge trigger. And I started very strongly searching for my birth mother at that time. And after a couple years, 
I quickly stopped searching because when I went to the adoption agency, I became part of their reunion program, which um, adoptees often have an ability uh, to do within certain adoption agencies, as you know. And through that, a confidential intermediary had contacted her and for good or bad, you know, she had told her that she would be very proud of me, that I was a pastor, that I was just a lovely young woman and, you know, so accomplished in life. And she would be so, you know, proud of me. And instantly, I think it scared my birth mother to death. As you guys know, you know, serving in ministry, people have all kinds of preconceived ideas of what ministers are like. Like when I'm on vacation, I don't even like to tell people I'm a minister because instantly they start treating me different. They start apologizing for everything they say. Like they'll say a cuss word and then they'll go, oh, so, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And they just act, they, they just act like we're not even human beings at times. You know, they, they just have this other, you know, worldly strange view of what a pastor is like. So anyway, she told my birth mother that I was a pastor and I think it scared her to death. I think she thought I was going to be perfect. She thought I was going to be judgmental. Um, so right away, she said, my, my birth mother's exact words to the intermediary were, I'm sure I would be very proud of her, but she's not going to be very proud of me. I can't face her with my failures in life. I, there's no way I can face her with the choices I've made, with the mistakes I've made. So uh, I begged that intermediary, please, please, please let me write a letter, an anonymous letter, because of course, all this was still sealed and secret and, you know, the courts keep it that way please let me write a letter with no names attached, no identifiers attached, just pouring out my heart and telling her, I'm not going to judge you for what you've done. I'm not going to judge you for what you've been through. I'm not resentful toward you. I love you without even knowing you. And I accept you. And please, please understand. I, I may be a pastor, but I'm not coming from this judgmental view. But the intermediary said, no, no, we don't allow that. So there was no way that I could get through to her heart that I was not going to judge her. And they gave her 30 days to change her mind. And she was petrified still to meet me because she thought that I wouldn't accept her, that I would reject her. And then two years went by and I went through what adoptees often call, I'm just qualifying this because Kim, you and I know these terms, but everybody who's listening, I'm sure doesn't. Yeah. I went through what is known in our community as secondary rejection, where it's the second time that we feel that rejection and pain. And this time as an adult, where as an adult, your birth parent says, no, I don't want to connect with you. And that is one of the hardest things. I think it may be the hardest thing that adoptees go through the second time around. It's like a, a double whammy. So two years. And I was, uh, then my husband and I were staff pastors at this church in Ohio. I was the music pastor. He was the youth pastor. And I was working, uh, we had two babies. I was working so hard, just working, working on, you know, everything, you know, Easter and Christmas musicals and weekly worship and all these things. I just busy, busy, busy. But at night I would cry myself to sleep every night, you know, just over the secondary rejection. It was overwhelming. And then one day, one of our pastors on staff, Norma Hartman, she was an older woman on staff, a grandmother. And I was still, you know, I was just in my twenties and she asked me, often Norma and I would go to lunch and she was a mentor for me, older pastor. And we went to lunch and I never told people in the church what I was facing with this, but she knew and we shared about it. And we went to lunch and she said to me, you need to pray about what God wants you to do. And I said, what do you mean what God wants me to do? Like it's been decided. Like my birth mother gave this response. The courts sealed it and said, this is it. What do you mean what I'm going to do? And she says, well, 
you didn't, what did, what did God tell you to do? I don't care what these other people have told you to do. What did God tell you to do? And I said, well, I didn't even think to ask because I just thought she said, no, the court said, no, this is it. End of story. She says, well, when we leave, we were at Bob Evans. She said, when we leave here, we're going back to the sanctuary at the church and we're going in, we're going to kneel at the altar and pray. And I'm going to pray that God tells you what to do. So we go to the sanctuary, we kneel down, we're praying just both of us on other opposite sides. And after a while, I get up from kneeling down. She says, what does God say? And I said, I know this sounds crazy, but I feel like God is telling me, the Holy Spirit is telling me, well, she didn't say no to you. She said no to a third party. She didn't say no to you. She said no to this other woman who didn't even allow you to express yourself. You had this person in between you and your mother. You know, it's not normal. As crazy as this sounds, I felt the Holy Spirit saying to me, it's not normal that a a daughter would not be able to speak to a mother. It's not normal that a mother would not be able to speak to a daughter. It's not normal that you would not be able to at least have a firsthand conversation. So go after that firsthand conversation. And I felt the Holy Spirit tell me that. I told Norma, she goes, great, start your search, start your search again. So I started my search. This was before the internet, before any of, you know, there was no internet, believe it or not, it's back in the dark ages. And so it was just U.S. mail, telephone, libraries. This was it. And I began a second search. And one day I was uh, actually home because I had the flu and I was watching TV and it was a talk show and it had this guy on there named Joe Culligan who had this book called You Two Can Find Anyone. And it said, you can find somebody for less than $20. And I was like, what? Because we were like starving staff pastors here. You know, we hardly have any money and I'm trying to do this on a, you know, staff pastor salary. So I said to Larry, can you go up to the mall? There was this uh, bookstore, V. Dalton Books. I said, can you go to the mall and see if they have this book? Now, this is crazy. Larry goes to the mall. He goes in and he says, I'm looking for this book. It's called You Two Can Find Anyone by Joseph J. Culligan. And they said, oh, we're always sold out of that book. It's so popular. I don't think we have a copy right now. And they went to look for it. And Larry actually walked out of the store and was getting ready to leave because they said that they, they didn't have it. And then he was just a few feet outside of the store walking away when the gal came running out and said, sir, I don't know how to explain this, but I came back to my cash register and the, and the book was right there. And it was crazy. So Larry bought this book, came home. I read the whole thing, did everything it said, except for one thing, because I couldn't afford it. And that was this thing called the death master file. And it was all the names of the people who had died, you know, that have your, your last name. And I had checked different places, but the cost was so high at the time. And then this one night I was praying about it. And I said, Lord, I've done everything this book said to do. And I just felt the Holy Spirit say, no, no, you really haven't. Read it again. So I read it again. And it had two things. First of all, it said, call the Salvation Army. They find people for you. So I called and I asked, you know, do you do you find people? And they said, well, we do, but are you adopted? And I said, well, yeah, I, I am. I didn't want, I wasn't going to lie. Well, we don't find people who's, you know, for people who are adopted, but have you tried the death master file? And I said, oh, I don't think I can afford it. And she goes, oh, there's this place in California that sells it for really super cheap. Let me give you the number. And she gave me the number. And that day I got my file for $13. And just to cut to the chase here to make it a little shorter, I ordered all the obituaries of people who had died with my last name, men who had died from 1966 until that present time looking for my grandfather, trying to identify my, my mother. Cause I knew, I knew his occupation. I knew he had six children. I knew he was an auto mechanic. So uh, the very last obituary I got was for a man who had six children, was an auto mechanic. And I sensed this is my grandfather. 
And I um, called the funeral home and asked them a few questions. And they explained to me that the children are always in order of oldest to youngest. And so they said, where did your mother fall? And I said, she's the youngest. And then they told me this, you know, this person here, I don't usually use my birth mother's name openly, even now that she's gone, but this person on the obituary, this is your mother. I called uh, information at the time there was no internet. I called 411, got her number and I called and it was her answering machine. And I heard her voice for the first time. And I just called over and over again. There was no caller ID at the time. So I could do that. And I called about 50 times and I just listened and just cried and cried and cried. And then Larry and I and the kids, uh, he came home and he saw me in this state of crying and he knew what had happened. He instantly said, you know, uh, what he was with a friend who they've been golfing and he walked in and he said, oh my gosh, my wife has found her birth mother. And the friend was like, what? Like, how did you even know that? He just instantly knew looking at me and the state I was in. So that night we drove all the way through the night and I was going to just walk up and knock on her door and... I did. And I think because we were never going to see each other again, according to, you know, the intermediary, I'd gone ahead and told her that my name had been changed to Deanna. She didn't give her my last name or anything, but she said it was Deanna. So when I knocked on her door, I just said her name and I said, uh, are you this person? And she said, yes. I said, please don't be afraid, but my name is Deanna and I think you know who I am. And she stood, we just stared at each other. It seemed like forever, but it probably was only a minute. And I asked if I could come in. And she said, yes, she said, it's better than standing on the porch. And she let me in and we were in her kitchen and she told me to sit down and she was just flying from one thing to the other, making coffee, going to the sink, all of this, telling me all her failures. And I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, do not say a word, do not say a word, just sit here, let her exhaust everything she has to say. And I sat in that chair and she went on for about 20 minutes telling me every one of her faults and failures, you know, I didn't do this. I didn't do that. I made mistakes with your father. I made mistakes, you know, with you. I know you don't understand why I made the choices I made. I made mistakes with your siblings. You know, I have two younger siblings that were born after me, not with the same father that I have. I know you don't understand. I'm just, I'm a failure. Her exact words, you found nothing. You found nothing. She said, I'm not worthy to be found. And she said, you're, you're going to regret this. You haven't, you found nothing. And I just waited until she, she sat down at that point and she just was exhausted of saying everything. When she was done, I just said, we've all made mistakes. I've made a ton of mistakes. I'm going to make a ton of mistakes again. We're both going to make mistakes and have faults and failures and problems. I said, none of that matters. I said, I went through hell and back to find you and I would go through hell and back to find you again. And I just said, I'm... Um, I'm here and I'm not going anywhere. And she stood up from her side of the table, ran over to my side, grabbed me around the head, like in a headlock and just wailed and wailed. It was like from the pit of her core, she was wailing. And uh, that was the start of us being together for 20 years, having a relationship for 20 years. That night, it was funny. She didn't want me to leave. Like we had a hotel and she didn't want me to leave. And I said, no, 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 we're not going to impose on you. We're going to the hotel. She was terrified of me leaving, terrified. We went out to put the kids in the car seat and to leave, to go back to the hotel around midnight. And she didn't want to let me go. And I said, I promise I'm coming back tomorrow. I promise I'm coming back tomorrow. And she said, I know, but the last time I did this, I never saw you again until now. And it was just... It was overwhelming. So we had 20 years together and 
during that 20 years, it was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful 20 years. But the one bad thing we had between us was she did not want to tell me who my father was. She never wanted to share anything about him except for he was Greek. She told me he was 100% Greek. He never supported her. She said he didn't even want to believe I existed. She could not stand him. She even admitted to me, I've lied about who he is to people. There's nobody right now that is alive that knows who he is. I'm not telling you who he is. She, she wanted me to have nothing to do with him. So 10 years ago, I thought, you know, I've tried to be a good adoptee for 20 years and not bring this because I wanted so badly to stay in relationship with my birth mother. I didn't want this to end. What we had was good. But I knew that the years are going by. Time is going by. He probably is dead by now. If he's not dead, he's at least 80. He's on the cusp. So 10 years ago, I said, I've tried to not bring this up. I've tried to not push, but he has to be 80 or dead. Please, please, will you tell me who my father is? And she said, what don't you understand about this? I am never going to tell you who he is. She said, in fact, I'm going to take his name to the grave. Wow. Well, what an interesting thing to say, because no one knew this. We didn't know this. She didn't know this. But two weeks, three weeks later, she suddenly had a horrible pain one night in her side and had my stepfather take her to the emergency room. And they thought she pulled a muscle, gave her some cream. Hours later, she said, this is not a pulled muscle. This is not, I, I need you to take me back. She went back to the emergency room. They did a scan and they said, you have a huge mass. You have cancer. Within several months, she was dead. And she, she ended up having bile duct and liver cancer. It very quickly took her life. And she took his name to the grave. So I was discouraged. I had nothing but he's Greek. She told me he had black wavy hair like mine. My hair was, you know, real dark at the time. Black wavy hair, 100% Greek. That was all I knew. And I was discouraged. I tested with all the DNA companies that were out at the time, the popular ones, Ancestry.com, 23andMe, GEDmatch, Family Tree, all of these. And it was even more discouraging when the results came back because the only thing it confirmed that I was excited about was that I truly was overwhelmingly Greek. I was 50% Greek. So I, I had proof of that. But all of the matches that were Greek were very distant. And it was very easy to to separate my matches because my father was 100% Greek. My mother was very American and from clearly from Virginia. And so I had probably a thousand matches on her side, almost none on his side. And if I did have one on his side, it was so distant. You couldn't even put any of the pieces together. So I was desperate. And I said, Lord, I believe in what I am preaching and teaching and proclaiming. i I truly believe in all this. This is not just, this I, This is not a career to me. This is not a, you know, just something that I just fluff. I mean, I really believe all this. So I said, I'm going to fast and pray and believe that you're going to, you know, I need you to tell me his name. I need you to reveal my father's name because there's no way outside of you that I'm ever going to know it. So I start praying. And after about three days of prayer, I was so upset about all this. I, even though I kind of have workaholic tendencies 
and I don't like to take off work. I took off 40 days of work because I was so upset about all this. And I went away and by myself and took 40 days of work. So for three days, I'm praying. And after about the third day, as I'm praying, I sense the Holy Spirit say to me in my mind, your father's name is Gus. So I had also started this little group on Facebook of friends of mine in the adoptee community or the first mother community and or the DNA community, genealogy community. I put together this little group and we called ourselves Finding Mr. Greek. And all these people are not Christians. Now, it wasn't a big group at the time. It grew to 18 people, but at the time it was just a couple people and all of them not Christians. And I went to several people. Laura Dennis is my closest friend in the adoptee community. She's an agnostic. Uh, we don't even believe the same thing at all, but I, she, and she was on my search team. And I told my husband, I told Laura, I told Priscilla Sharp, who's in the first mother community who helped me. I told my friend Gail Lechner, who's also a search angel and was helping me on the team. I said, listen, some of you might think I'm crazy, especially those of you who don't believe, but I need to let you know that I was in prayer and the Holy Spirit told me your father's name is Gus. I said, I want to search for Gus. We need to search for Gus in Richmond, Virginia. I quickly learned through Priscilla that Gus also meant Constantine, Constantinos, and Costas in Greek. And so we needed to search for those names as well because it all meant Gus. So Priscilla suggested, let's look 10 years younger than your mother and then the same age and then 10 years older. My mother had said he was that he was 10 years older. Well, she gave all different dates because she didn't want me to know. And so she gave several different ages to try to throw me off the trail. But anyway, we looked 10 years younger and 10 years older. Exhausted all these names of people who back in 1965 were living in Richmond, Virginia and named Gus Costas Constantinos. And when we could find them, I called them if they were still alive or I would call if they weren't, I would might call like call their daughter, their son, their, their niece, their nephew, whoever. And we exhausted all these names. And I would ask them to take a DNA test for me and I'd pay for it. Many of them agreed to it. Nothing was a match. I was so discouraged. This team helped me for the next 10, well, the next following that, that's just about the two year mark when we finished with that. The next eight years, so 10 years total, we kept going, we kept following leads. We worked on it. There was a group of us that worked on this every single day. We followed all kinds of leads, came up with nothing until May 11th, 2022. I was on a Zoom call for work. I lead this group called the Stronger Leadership Network. And we were a, a cohort of women on this group being taught. I had invited a, a pastor, Stephanie Smith, to come and teach us that day. And Stephanie said, I want you to pull out a paper. And this is just going to be between you and God. But I want you to write a question to the Lord. And my question that I wrote on my paper was, when are you going to help me find my father? And my friend, Christy, who's a pastor as well, she wrote on her paper three questions. And her third one was, will you please help Deanna to find her father? And I always say to people, you know, I have been asked the question, what does this matter, this Zoom call and this prayer? What, what's the big deal? Because haven't you prayed about this a thousand times? And I always say, first of all, it's important to note because the Bible tells us to keep on praying and keep on seeking and don't give up. And secondly, it's important because who we surround ourselves with is very important. And I'm surrounded by friends 
who care and pray about the things I also care about. So people that are going to bear your burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, people who are going to care about what matters and surround you. So when I got off of that Zoom call, my friend Regina, who was like the lead searcher on finding Mr. Greek, she said, I could not wait for you to get off of this Zoom call because I have such great news, Deanna. You have a very close Greek match, a first cousin match. We are going to know very shortly who your father is. She said they're already starting to build out the family tree and figure out. So then very quickly, they figured out that this first cousin was an X match, meaning an X chromosome match, which if we were high enough centum organs, as it's known, it was a definite X match, meaning that I had to come through that match's mother, meaning that her brother had to be my father. And we were just praying, praying, praying. She didn't have like 10 brothers, you know, because to figure this out. Well, the great news was that she only had one brother and his name was Gus. Totally amazing. Within a very short time, uh, like an hour, I had emailed the cousin and said, can I, can we talk? We just matched on 23andMe. And he said, yes, I'm in Greece. Can I call you? And he called and he said, I think you're my uncle Gus's daughter. And I said, I, I believe that too. And he said, what do you know? And I said, very little. He's Greek and has black hair. And he said, well, and he proceeded to tell me much more of the story. And I was stunned to find out that Gus was alive. He was 91 years old. He never got married and he never had any other children. I was his only child in the world. And uh, within 24 hours, I was on FaceTime with Gus. And he accepted me immediately, not because of DNA. He he never did understand DNA, but he knew he had had a relationship with my mother. He knew this was the case. He immediately threw his arms open to me. He immediately accepted me. When we first FaceTimed, he was crying, which I learned later that's not that's not his typical. He doesn't really cry. He was crying. And I said, Gus, I knew I was coming for you, but you didn't know I was coming. I've been preparing for this. Of course, I thought I was going to find a grave and I'm overwhelmed to find a person. But nevertheless, I've been working on this for 10 years. You didn't know. And I can see that you're very overwhelmed right now. Do you need a minute? Do you, do you need to hang up and I can call you later? And his next words were, how soon can you come? And I was able to go and to meet him and we, I mean, it was just, it was, it was amazing. He immediately received me immediately. And at the end of the day, I said, you know, Gus, we've met at what is the end of your life. I don't know how much time we're going to have. I don't know whether this is going to be a month, a year, two years, five years. I, I don't know. I said, but the good news for both of us is that we can spend eternity together. I said, but that's your choice. And he said, well, I want to make that choice. And I was able to tell him about Jesus and the plan of salvation. And I said, would you like to pray that prayer with me? And he said, yes. And that day I was able to lead my 91-year-old father to the Lord and start a discipleship process with him, discipling my 91-year-old father. It was, it was surreal. I mean, talking to him about everything from the fruit of the spirit, communion. We would take communion together. We would... I mean, it was just amazing the things we were doing together. I never, I never imagined myself meeting him, much less discipling him. And then he was terrified of dying there prior to this in January, 2022. 
little over a year ago. He was taken to the hospital because his doctor did a wellness check and he was found in horrific condition. They took him by ambulance to the hospital. He stayed there for two months. Adult Protective Services was involved because he had no one to take care of him and he wasn't able to take care of himself and he had been found in this condition. He wanted to go back home, but he wasn't able to because he couldn't take care of himself. So they put him in this nursing home and he did not want to be there. He was there against his will, but it wasn't safe for him to go home. So they told him without a miracle, he would never be going home. And lo and behold, um, a miracle happened. So he, he went into the hospital January 3rd. He went into the nursing home March the 3rd. And I brought him home with me to Florida July the 26th and took care of him for the remainder of his life until he passed away December the 6th, which is actually St. Nicholas Day. And he is Gus Nicholas. So it's just surreal that he died on St. Nicholas Day. We only had about seven months together, but it was the most amazing seven months of my life. And, you know, there were days where he would tell me, and, and not just me, he would tell friends. He told a friend of ours, uh, Flo Bernstein, he said, these, these, this is the greatest time of my life. You know, th these are some of the greatest moments of my life. So we had that time together and it was absolutely precious. So I have done absolutely 100% all of the talking just now and told you the overview of my maternal and paternal reunion. So there you go. I've tried to condense it as much as possible, but man, it's a crazy roller coaster ride there. Thank you for joining us for part one of our two-part interview with Deanna Schrodes. Deanna is a speaker, a pastor, an author, and also writes a blog all about adoption that you can find online at adopterestoration.com. If you want to reach out to us or have questions or comments, you can reach us on Facebook at Life Hurts God Heals. And as always, remember that you are God's beloved, so be loved.